The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I just wanted to say thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm pleased to share with you my interview with one of the co-authors of the world's littlest book on climate change, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes About CO2. Mike Nelson, our guest, is an award-winning meteorologist from Denver, Colorado. Check the show notes for all the accolades he's received from his reporting And he's a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, just one of 30 TV weathercasters nationwide who has that honor. I talked to him about how his career in weather sparked a passion in educating about climate change. You might learn some science, and there's a giveaway for listeners, too. If you're listening to this episode on the day the podcast goes live, which is Tuesday, January 19th, 2021, Email me at chelsea at republicen.org, and my name is C-H-E-L-S-E-A at republicen.org, and I will help hook you up with a free download. The version of the book being given away is formatted for Kindle. Even if you don't have an actual Kindle device, you can still use the app on your phone or tablet. So again, free downloads of the world's littlest book on climate change for those reaching out to me on January 19th. Just a little incentive for listening to us on the day we go live. And now, my conversation with Mike Nelson. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, our very first meteorologist to join us on the podcast, Mike Nelson. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Chelsea. Nice to be with you. So you are our first meteorologist, and I find it really interesting that um, you wrote this book, the world's smallest, littlest, littlest book on climate change, um, because... I, obviously, the seat that you are in as a meteorologist, you are living, breathing, eating the weather every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. Um, what? So I presume that you encounter a lot of people who mistake weather with climate. I know we definitely do in the world that I work in. So if you're stuck in an elevator with somebody who doesn't understand the difference between weather and climate, how do you describe that to them? Well, an analogy that I've developed over the years that seems to uh, work pretty well with people is, uh, you know, weather is is a fast changing event and climate is a long term. So I like to say that weather is one play in a football game and climate is the history of the National Football League. That's an amazing analogy. I am going to use that in the future. Um, and you know, and you and I both know in the work that we do that climate is. It's the trends and the patterns over a longer period of time, as you just said in your analogy. And so we look to the past, right, the the climate past, to get a feel for our future. But I have to say, sometimes folks in your industry get a little bit of a bad rap, right? If you do not get the weather precisely right, 
then, you know, I know, for example, we had a snowstorm right before Christmas. Snowstorm, I'm putting in quotes. Um, New York got hammered, but in Washington, D.C., our forecast said anywhere from 2 to 18 inches. Mm -hmm. And I read that and I'm like, okay, they just don't know, right? Because we live in a weird place where sometimes, you know, it can be snowing here and five miles away it's raining. And so how do you deal with sort of that pushback that I think sometimes you get a bad rap for what you do and don't know. And then to say, you know, to then using that in the greater picture of trying to describe climate change, there's going to be some mistrust, right? People are saying, oh, you can't say what's going to happen next week. How do you know what's going to happen in three years, five years, 10 years? My answer to that is that, um, it's actually easier to predict climate than it is to predict weather because weather is very fast changing and frequently of big extremes from one day to the next with a storm system coming in. For instance, if you decided that you wanted to get away from the cold uh, in the month of February, would you go to Denver, Colorado, or would you go to Miami, Florida? Obviously, you'd say, I'm going to go to Miami, Florida, because the climate of Miami indicates that the odds are very good that you would have warm weather in February while Denver would be much colder. The weather of that one particular weekend that you might go to Florida may be that Denver has warm Chinook winds and we have temperatures in the 60s while a cold front has moved through Miami and you have cloudy temperatures in the 50s. So that doesn't mean the climate of Miami has changed. It meant that you just were unlucky with the weather that you got when you went to Miami. And I think that's a really another great um, way of describing it for people who sometimes see, you know, I think the term climate change can feel very abstract to people and um, a good way to kind of an example that makes it feel not not more real, but sort of it's a little bit more understandable. And in the same way, you know, I've worked on on climate change policy since 2003. And I was at, I, think I may have given this example on the podcast before, but I was at a family wedding um, about 10, 12 years ago. And my aunt, who lives in Indiana, came up to me and said, so your mom says that you're trying to stop climate change. Why are you trying to take away my nice summers? <laughs> <laughs> and I was really speechless, right? Because there was a little bit of, I don't know, there, there was definitely a disconnect on her part. But when we think about, I, I feel like we have these two ideas, weather and climate change, sometimes, especially from more of the eco-hesitant crowd, they're too linked, right? Mm -hmm. The the ideas are too linked. Now, you as a meteorologist, obviously, at some point in your career, and this is going to be my next question, you did start to notice these warming patterns. So at what point, you know, when when did you see that? And when did you decide that you needed to kind of be this ambassador to help people understand what was happening? Well, I received my degree in meteorology in the mid-1970s from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And even then, I remember sitting in lectures, listening to the climate scientists at the UW talking about the impact of carbon dioxide on warming our planet. Now, there is some pushback when people say, you know, back in the 70s, you guys were all saying we we're going to head for a new ice age. And I know because I was there. We'd had about three straight, very cold winters in North America in the mid-1970s. And there was some talk 
that the aerosols, in other words, the dust particles from the burning of fuels, was blocking out enough sunshine. They called it the, the dirty window theory that it would cause the planet to cool, cause the ice sheets to expand, which would further increase the albedo, the reflectivity of the ice, and we would gradually go into a new ice age. And there are even books, I have them in my library here in my home, uh, written at the time, Climates of Hunger, uh, The Cooling. Well, even at that point, the overwhelming research papers being written said, yes, we are seeing some cooling due to the uh, dustiness, if you will, of the atmosphere. But the carbon dioxide increase will overwhelm that shortly, and we will see a long-term warming pattern. And so when people say, what about back in the 70s? I say, look, I was there. I sat in the lectures, and uh, I can show you the data that says that by far, uh, eight out of 10 papers said we'll be warming. Well, that's interesting because it seems to me like we, we live in a world right now where people like to take a snippet of a fact and build their case around it. And so it sounds very much like that was what happened back, you know, if you're reflecting back on the 70s, is that people just took that that fear that was based on those three winters and not looking at the whole picture, which is unfortunately something that we do a lot these days. So as a meteorologist, then you, you knew that this was a, a thing that was happening and you probably started to see some trends did you start to talk to your view, you know, at some point were you talking to your, your viewers about this phenomenon? Well, it was interesting that um, when James Hansen testified before Congress in the late 80s, we reported that on the news. We talked about the fact that the world is getting warmer. And even H.W. Bush talked about the White House effect countering mm -hmm. greenhouse yeah. effect. And there really wasn't a lot of pushback at that time. What happened is the... Science um, got hijacked a little bit by the politics. And I think part of that is that climate scientists are very smart people, but they're not necessarily marketers. And they felt that their science would speak to it, much as it did with when we realized the impact on the ozone layer caused by CFCs. And we quickly passed the Montreal Protocol and pretty quickly reversed everything. Well, we didn't realize that uh, on a couple orders of magnitude, there, there was financial incentive to delay anything being done to limit the use of fossil fuels. And so basically, we wasted about three decades on really getting down to fixing the problem. And so I remember talking about climate change in the early 90s on TV and not getting any pushback from viewers. That kind of developed in the later 90s, in the early 2000s, and there were Heartland Institute and some other groups that came out with their pseudoscience to try and push back on it. And for the climate scientists, I think they were like just totally taken back. It's like, why would you debate this any more than you debate the design of a rocket engine? I mean, this is just the science. And so then it became... Um, uncomfortable for some television broadcasters and meteorology to talk about climate change because you began to get these nasty voice messages and emails and most of the time they were copied to your general manager or your news director saying, I'm never going to watch your station again because you're making the weather political. Wow. And it was bullying. Yeah. Um, now, I've been doing this for a long time and so for me, that didn't really scare me because I've been in my market for 30 years and mm -hmm. people know who I am and I've spoken to their kids at school and I've been to their Rotary Club. 
But if you're a younger television forecaster and maybe you're in your 20s and you've got a couple little kids and suddenly people are saying, you know, I'm not going to watch you anymore and they copy your boss, you're afraid. You're yeah. thinking, I'm going to keep my job. Right. And so part of our incentive as the, uh, the, the more senior members of the profession is to encourage and uh, empower the younger broadcasters so you can talk about this and not be afraid. Because I will tell you that uh, whenever I do discuss climate change, which is pretty much weekly in some of my reports, it's not every single mm -hmm. show, but if it's a quiet day and I've got 30 or 45 seconds, I can dribble a little something in there. Um, nine out of 10 of the emails I get are positive. Of course. I'll yes. get one nasty gram from somebody. It's usually the same grumpy old person that, you yeah. know, is shouting louder as they become fewer and fewer. But nine out of 10 say, thank you for talking about the science. That's why we watch you. Well, we get nasty grams too, um, as I'm sure you can uh, understand. With um, at republican.org, we are targeting our message toward those who are right of center, who um, believe that climate change is a problem that needs to be solved. And so, you know, every once in a while, either to the podcast or to a weekly email that I send out, you get that word back that is, oh, this is just a bunch of, you know, a bunch of lies. And uh, it's always hard to get those. But at the same time, you don't let it stop you from doing the work that you have to do. And um, to the climate science point, you know, we had Carrie Emanuel on last year. He, um, a climate scientist from MIT, and he was, a, you know, really great at sort of demystifying some of the um, myths that are out there about climate scientists. Like they're all on the take, being kind of the big one. He's like, yeah, yeah, I definitely got into this job for the the riches that are um, poured upon me. So that to me kind of takes me to your book, which. Um, Again, for our listeners, it's the world's littlest book on climate change. 25 pages includes everything, the acknowledgments, the page about the authors, the table of contents. So really, it is something you can sit down in one sitting and read. And you have these 10 facts in 10 minutes. So what point did you decide, this is my calling, I'm going to co-author this book and, and narrow it down to the 10 most important facts? The way that that developed was uh, my co-author, Michael Banks, was out on his bike up in the Boulder area and happened to see Dr. Peter Tons, who works for NOAA and actually has run the NOAA lab on Mauna Loa. He's probably the most knowledgeable person in the world about CO2. Uh, he might say that's a little overstated, but he's really, <laughs> really smart. And uh, so Michael was asking Peter some things about CO2 and Peter kind of smiled and, and started to answer a little bit and Michael realized you know we've got to get this this kind of knowledge out to the average American because most people don't run into Dr. Tons on a bike ride they don't see a climate scientist walking down the street but they do invite the television meteorologist into their home every night right. and our unique capability is TV weathercasters is that every day we take something complicated, the weather, and explain it in simple, easy to understand terms in about two and a half minutes. So uh, Michael reached out to me and he said, would you be interested in partnering with Dr. Tons and I and, and developing a booklet that quickly can help people understand? Because a lot of folks aren't, they're wonderful books that are out there that are written, that are, they're lengthy, hundreds of pages. 
But a lot of the folks that are kind of on the margins of caring about this aren't going to invest in that. They're not going to take that time. We needed something that in a quick read, 10, 20 minutes, people could understand the basics of our changing climate and leave them with a positive message at the end that, you know, this problem is human cause. Therefore, the solutions are also going to be from humans. Yeah, actually, I think it was Mitt Romney who said um, last year that we hope it's human caused because then we have a human solution. Whereas, well you know, if it's not human caused, we're really kind of screwed. <laughs> I mean, I guess right. we could still have a solution. But is there any one of these 10 facts that you that you find yourself using the most or that you um, feel is kind of the most important one that people who might be eco hesitant or more in that denier camp um, um, are, are convinced by? Well, we try and, you know, it, it's really when people say you can't possibly understand the climate, I mean, it's way too complicated. It's like, no, actually, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And so, um, for instance, the first point is carbon dioxide is on the rise. Okay, well, we can measure that very simply. We do it every single day at various reporting stations around the world, including Mauna Loa, and it is increasing every single day. Changes a bit in the hemispheres because of the uh, respiration, if you will, the breathing of plants in the spring and summer in either hemisphere, but globally, it's increasing. That's that's a fact. Then uh, when people say, you know, this all started with Al Gore, well, that's point number two, that uh, no, we've known this since when, since Abraham Lincoln was in the White House, even prior to that, we've known the heat trapping effects of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So this is not anything new. Um, and we know that it's us, point number three, because we can measure the specific chemical signature or flavor of the type of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. This is a lot of the work that Dr. Tons does. So we know it's us. We know it's increasing. We know the impact that carbon dioxide acts like a blanket trapping heat from escaping into space. Boom, boom, boom. Well, and, and I think that that's really interesting, the, the part about um, it being human caused, because one of the um, one of the excuses or the pushbacks that we hear often is, well, you can't tell what is human caused versus what is natural cycle. And that's just not true. Right. Right. And a lot true. of the, what's interesting to me is, Scientists, you know, people will say, you know, you only have 150 years of, of good temperature records. Well, we're smarter than that. I mean, uh, how do you think they know where to drill an oil well? Because you look out and look at the ground and go, well, where do we drill it? Well, we're really clever at reconstructing the past so that we can look at the geology of the rocks, the synclines and the anticlines and figure out where there may be formations that have been laid down for millions of years that could contain petroleum. Many of those same techniques are the way that we can post-date climate going back hundreds of thousands and even millions of years. So the reason why when people say, well, climate's always changed, we say that's exactly why we know what's going on now because we understand what causes our planet to gradually shift in temperature and go from colder periods to warmer periods, ice ages. We understand every bit of that. And frankly, it boils down to three things. It boils down to the heat of the sun, which we can measure, not changing very much right now. The shape of the orbit, if you ever heard of the Milankovic cycles, which are little changes in the way the Earth goes around the sun that will tip the planet a little bit more in and out of ice ages. And the third one is the chemistry of the atmosphere. And of those three, only one, the chemistry is changing rapidly. 
Interesting. Um, did you, I'm sure you saw that, uh, that year 2020 was just, uh, announced as the hottest year on record. And I believe that makes the last 10 years are in the top 15 hottest years on record. Like this is a trend. So you just talked about the longevity point, right? That, that people will push back against you've only been recording weather for, you know, however many 150 years or, but, I think it's actually really compelling to even just look at that snapshot that in the last decade, when you see each year, almost it seems every year is the new hottest year on record, that's a trend. Yeah. Then you might recall back in the right around the turn of the century when there was this, all this pushback of there hasn't been any warming since 1997. You don't hear that uh, argument very much anymore because it's completely washed out. And last year, was not even a, a powerful El Nino year, which when you have the warm water in the Pacific, you kind of, if you will pardon the, the phrase, you burp that warmth out of the water into the atmosphere. And so we're doing this even during uh, uh, El Nino uh, neutral years and La Nina years when you should see a cooling. Well, we're not even seeing that trend much anymore. Yeah, I read a stat that said, and I believe it was like people born after 1985 or 1986, so basically millennials, Gen Z, have never experienced, have never lived in a year where there was below average temperatures. Right, right. And so part of the, uh, you talked earlier about my incentive to talk about this. Well, I became a grandfather in uh, 2012, and now I have three grandchildren. And that is, for me, the big motivation to be more vocal about this, because the impact in, in the rest of my life is not going to be as extreme as it will be in the rest of their lives. For sure. For sure. So this book, World's Littlest Book on Climate Change, available on Kindle. And we do have a special offer for anyone who's listening to this podcast on January 19th, which is the day that um, that we're, it goes live. You email me, Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at republicen.org, and we are going to hook you up with a free download. And I can tell you it is you can read it in a sitting and maybe you don't want it for you, but you want to bone up on some of these facts for relatives you might be talking to or friends you might be talking to. And, you know, we hear we have a we hear from our members that quite frequently. Right. They want to be armed with good arguments and good science. So whether they're talking to the cranky uncle who doesn't believe that climate change is real or they are, you know, I guess we're not really getting out and about as much as we used to, but at some day the vaccine is going to be widespread and we're all going to be able to socialize again. Um, just information is power. So anytime you can find a way to educate yourself and, you know, there's always that risk. And I guess this was the other thing I was going to ask you about is that, um, Sometimes I find that you can lose people if you get a little too scientific because they think they're being talked down to or they think you're being elitist. But I found it when I was um, going through your book that it just feels so factual. You know, I didn't feel that there wasn't that condescending nature to it. it it's just the facts, people. Facts are facts. We worked very hard at that. And, and part of the, the um, desire on this book was to take the brilliance of someone like Dr. Tons, who, you know, he could go on forever about this stuff, but try and work to bring that down to a level that the average American that doesn't have that type of scientific uh, training. Right. Well, your two and a half minute weather segment, which is 
way more than two and a half minutes worth of information and understanding that you have to put into that. You have to take something very complicated and express it in a way that not only is understandable, but you have to be a messenger that people believe, especially if you're talking about um, extreme weather. You know, you don't want people to go, oh, that guy, he always predicts a snowstorm and it never happens. Or, you know, you have to be believable and trustworthy. And uh, most of the research and, and television stations do a lot of research on their audience shows that overwhelmingly the weather segment is not only the most popular, the number one reason people tune in, but the local weather casters have a higher level of trust. Right. Well, and, and I don't want to discount the role that weather plays in convincing people that climate change is a phenomenon they need to take seriously. I believe that when you do see some of these big extreme weather events, whether it's hurricanes in the Gulf or the firefighters in California and and all of the, the Western states, that people are starting to connect the dots, right? Because these aren't, you know, I, I we had a guest last week who said in his town they've had three 500-year floods in like a four-year period. And where I am, we have a town about 30 minutes away that's had 3,000-year floods in, over four years. And so when you start to see these extreme weather patterns repeating, something's going on. The three largest wildfires in terms of acreage in the history of Colorado all occurred this year. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, listeners, get yourself a copy of this book. Um, ping me on Tuesday, January 19th. Otherwise, you'll have to spring for it. But you know what? It's worth it. It's always worth it to pay for things that are going to be informative. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I... You know, like I said, first meteorologist on the show, and I thank you for taking the time to join us today. You are very welcome. If I could close my portion just with the quote that's at the end of our book. Sure. Which is Gaylord Nelson, who is not a relative of me, Mike Nelson, but he was <laughs> senator from the state of Wisconsin, where I grew up, and he was the founder of Earth Day back in 1970. And his quote is, when it is asked how much it will cost to protect the environment, one more question should be asked. How much will it cost our civilization if we do not? Yes, I think that is a very, um, that is a quote that has stood the test of time. And we're very familiar with Senator Nelson and his daughter is a good friend of our executive director, Bob Inglis, and carries on his work, her father's work. So um, again, big pleasure to talk to you. And I wish that I were out in Denver and you were talking about, um, oh, you want to go to Miami or Denver in February? And I would always pick Denver. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Chelsea, and to all of the listeners. Uh, please take the 15 or 20 minutes to, to read this book and consider. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. So what did you think of that, Price? I really felt like I enjoyed that conversation with Mike Nelson. Editors and Producers Insight, that was an interview where I hardly touched it, clipped it, edited it all. It was literally perfect from start to finish. There wasn't anything I had to do, no triage, nothing. It was a really good interview, and I thought having him, uh, our first meteorologist on the podcast, was awesome. And I'm even more excited about the fact that people can 
uh, get his book for free today. Yeah, that's right. So listeners, January 19th, Tuesday, if this is the day that you're listening then and you're interested in getting your own copy, digital copy, Kindle version of the world's littlest climate book, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes. He says it might take you more like 15 or 20 to read, depending on how fast of a reader you are. But it's co-authored by Scientist, by Mike Nelson. There's one other author. And they're offering free digital downloads today only. If you aren't listening on the 19th, well, Price, I'm sorry. This is just... The perfect reason why you should always listen to the podcast on the day it comes out. <laughs> yep, but it was it was a really good interview, and for those of us who work in obviously this climate space, you know, so often every day, you know the the weather, you know, versus climate thing, we 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 know well. But for a lot of our listeners that you know, um, you know, either may not know the difference or you know have had trouble. I thought Mike's analogy of using that sports analogy when comparing. Uh, and differentiating between climate and weather was really, really good. And all, all told, I thought Mike was just a fantastic interview. And I'm so glad that you got him and were able to book that interview because he was very, very insightful. He really was. And I hope that our listeners feel the same way. You know, that's the whole goal of the podcast, right? To bring listeners to or bring um, guests to our listeners' ears who, you know, they may not have heard of, um, heard of or heard from before. Mm -hmm. And while it's always exciting to have that lawmaker on, I really enjoy these other guests that have like just remarkable insight as well. And it just really shows the complexity of the issue and that we're all in this together. Yep. 100%. Um, before we, um, go any further, I know that we obviously have a big day in Washington, DC this week. Um, I want to shout out some of our new members that you can join at republican.org forward slash join. Again, republican.org forward slash join. A couple of new members uh, randomly. We picked out of a hat Nathan M. from Michigan, Carol D. in Idaho, Daniel V. in Illinois, John F. in California, and Satya T. in New York. Welcome aboard and welcome to other new members that we that I may not have read off right there, obviously. Uh, we have a lot of people join every single week and we hope if you have not joined, you will consider doing so. Republican.org forward slash join. Um, real and quick. Price, yep. when, oh, sorry. When you said that, it just reminded me I didn't tell people how to get their free download. Duh. Email me. <laughs> C-H-E-L-S-E-A at republicen.org if you want that free download. Yep. Chelsea. So, sorry, that was like a pretty key point to leave out. That helps. That helps. Um, real quick on the way out the door, um, a big week in Washington, uh, regardless of where you stand politically, the inauguration of another president in the United States is always a big, uh, momentous, historic day uh, in the Capitol, and that will be no different this week. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting and also a little hard to see the level of militarization of the Capitol. You know, places that I'm used to walking freely are now totally fenced in. The perimeter is so large, but I respect that they're taking the security threats um, seriously and just hoping for a peaceful day, peaceful transition of power as we do every four years or every eight years. And so hopefully all goes well on Wednesday, and then we can all just get back to business. That's all I want to do, Price. I just want to get back to business. All right, back to business. Who will we have next week, Chelsea? 
I am bringing you um, a gentleman named Martin Ogle. He is the founder of this concept called All Careers, where his goal is to embed sustainability into all jobs. So it's not like your green job we think of as being something that's in clean energy, right? But his point is that every job can and should be a green job. And so he's really started by looking at high schools, talking to young kids, because right, the next generation is going to be the generation that makes change. And I just think this is a really interesting idea, looking at where we are in the world and how it, it really is upon all of us to do our parts for the planet. It. I think it's really timely and he has an interesting story. We also have coming up future weeks, not exactly set in stone yet, but Bob Purchisepi, who runs the Center for Energy Solutions, um, Environment and Energy Solutions, C2ES, Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. There we go. I have cobwebs in my head mm-hmm. today, Bryce, for <laughs> sure. Also, one of our spokespeople, um, we have the, a relatively new spokesperson, and she just had a great op-ed in the Invading Seas Project, and she owns a tackle company in Florida. So she's a big angler, you know, big fisher woman. Yep. Um, her name is Nicole Kershoff, and she's going to come on the show, too, and talk about climate change from that angle, right, from the sports sportsman, sportswoman angle. So those are just a few teasers for what we have coming up. And, you know, as always, we appreciate your feedback, your suggestions, your volunteering to be on the show. So um, if you have a great idea, throw it my way. Also, uh, make sure you give us a rating Apple podcast. Uh, Easy to do. Just go right there and hit four or five stars preferably five, and anything you want to say about the podcast that you like and enjoy, we would love to hear uh, and know about it. But, uh, Chelsea, until next time, have a great week, and appreciate everybody listening, and we will talk to you then, Chelsea. All right. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at republicen.org. Make sure to visit republicen.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 